Hello, I'm Daniel. And I'm Liz. And welcome to A Dose of Dizzy. Your accessible but digestible dose of vestibular research. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of A Dose of Dizzy. We are on episode 10 of our second season. That's incredible. I can't believe it's already the end of October. It's slightly terrifying that this (laughs) semester, as you would probably call it, coming out of the school age is... uh, going so quickly but oh yeah i hope everyone's i know everyone's having a a jolly fall semester i mean this is like crunch time for everyone so it's a uh it's an exciting but i'm sure busy time for for a lot of you out there and the leaves may be changing but i'll tell you that's the best part (laughs) what's not is us bringing some good vestibular information i have always said this but i love doing this podcast because it really pushes me to learn new things and this is an episode where i had to do some research i opened my textbooks i was doing the doing the research to try to bring it to you guys today so we're going to be talking about advanced rotational studies and it's it's more than just your typical rotary chair exam yeah and it's uh so we've we've talked a lot about some typical stuff that liz will kind of walk us through just to kind of get a recap, I know we've we've had a, an episode on rotational chair, but there are a few other tests that we'll uh, discuss throughout this episode that are more or less. Uh, I would guess yes, we classify them as advanced, but they're they're very unique and specialized um, protocols built into some of the rotational chairs. So this isn't necessarily going to be a protocol, or all these protocols aren't going to be maybe. Um, automatically built into your system, but they are, I believe, options and depending on the chair you have. And it's really good. You know, our goal in bringing information about different vestibular tests is to arm you with all the possible tests that you could have as in a battery for that patient that you need it. And it's important that we know about these so that we can best serve our patients. So we know that when it comes to typical rotational studies, there's something called the Shaw test, the sinusoidal harmonic acceleration test. And really the goal of that evaluation is to look at the vestibular ocular reflex, how our ears talk to our eyes at a variety of frequencies. So we know, you know, in vestibular, there's a lot of different tests that look at the VOR. This is one of the most important reflexes for humankind. So the calorics look at a really low frequency. That rotational chair looks at kind of what we say mid to high. And then V-hit is really our, our best known high frequency VOR evaluation. Yeah. So like Liz mentioned, and I like to, um, think of basically rotational chair as you know yes we we talk about it as this mid frequency point um but it is actually a range of of mid frequencies and liz mentioned like the vor in and of itself being um one of the most important reflexes i believe it is the most studied reflex Hmm. um out there i could very well be completely wrong about that but i feel like i've read that somewhere um, it's my most studied reflex, it's, it's, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's at least our most studied reflex uh, yeah. and hopefully Super for a important. lot of you out there yeah uh, and bes- besides you know shot testing looking at that reflex it's also used a lot of times in testing to give us an idea of where the patient is as far as central compensation so how well their brain has adjusted to a vestibular insult yeah exactly and so you know, similar to the other measures that we've we've discussed, and a lot of the measures that we talk about in vestibular science, we're using video goggles, high re- resolution video goggles, to do this. 
typically this this again this test is done in the dark um and i had mentioned earlier it tests across a range of frequencies it's also considered um more or less the the gold standard for diagnosing a true bilateral vestibular hypofunction so you know before this rotational chair was kind of routine in a specialized dizzy clinic we you know we would use calorics to kind of, to diagnose uh, bilateral weakness but now that's i feel like rotational chair has kind of taken taken the game on that one absolutely so rotary chair does more than just shaw testing and you may you know have learned some of these things back in school but maybe you're not using them in practice so we're going to run you through five different advanced rotational studies that you can consider and like daniel said we'll tell you if they're you know system dependent because not you know all of these tests can be performed in your typical rotary chair but really the goal of these rotational studies is to provide either more information on a peripheral impairment um, which daniel you said there's a specific population that you may consider this in sure yeah um i know sometimes you know we've oftentimes actually you know you may have a patient that may you know may have had middle ear surgery and we all know that when that is present you know the interpretation of our traditional caloric test may um may be affected just depending on how how you know it just essentially affects how the temperature transfers through the entire system and so i know i've used um a few of these advanced tests uh to to sort of just provide not necessarily you know surefire this is the peripheral impairment to just provide me a little bit more information about underlying function when i can't necessarily rely on on our gold standard caloric yeah and surprisingly you know i was reading today in one of the textbooks a lot of times, which I don't know if your patient would agree, but rotary chair can be a little bit more tolerable than some of the almost artificial stimuli of like the heat transfer from caloric through the ear can feel a little unnatural for people. So at least this mechanical movement is a little bit more natural for the system to expect. But beyond providing, you know, information on a possible peripheral impairment and more, you know, data on that, it's I think it's really helpful, some of these advanced rotational studies for helping distinguish peripheral versus central lesions. And there's in particular some special clinical populations that we'll be talking about as we go through each test. So you can keep it in your back pocket in case you come across one of these patients. You hit it right there on the nose. I feel like, yeah, differentiating that peripheral and central is truly central for the rotational chair. Yes, it is. Now, number one thing I always say that's different from shaw testing because i feel like everybody's used to shaw testing you do not need to task during the test that we are about to describe i feel like that might be my pet peeve is to like (laughs) hear people tasking during some of these tests but they're a little bit you know more advanced in the fact that they requires a little bit more effort out of the patient besides just keeping their eyes open for some of these tests and so that's why you don't require tasking Um, but there's five tests we're going to go through we're going to start talking about one that's called the visual enhancement test or vvor you may have heard it described as and essentially this test evaluates the ability of the eye pursuit system to cancel out that vestibular ocular reflex and it's really you know a function of the cerebellum that relies on three main systems, your VOR, the optokinetic reflex, and also the smooth pursuit system. And so what it looks like for the patient is they're set up in a rotational chair. So they're seated in that chair that can move. There is usually a dot on the screen or on the wall if they're in enclosed dome that stays stationary while the chair is rotating back and forth at 
higher frequency. So that's more of like an everyday movement back and forth. It kind of reminds me of like when your dentist sits down on the stool and they're talking to you and they're kind of like swaying back and <laughs> oh forth. My gosh. It's a very similar movement. It's not very dramatic. It's super easily tolerated. And clinically, I would use this test. That's like one of my first tests that I would do with patients before Shaw, just to kind of get them warmed up to movement without it being overwhelming. So, you know, especially in like concussion populations, I would start with this test and I would do um, one VVOR frequency and then I would do the same one in Shaw. So I'd say, okay, now we're going to do the exact same one in the dark. And it was a little bit easier for them to tolerate because they knew exactly what movement to accept, expect and how also the length of the expectation of that movement. So the goal when you're doing a VVOR test is a you're trying to determine whether that smooth pursuit eye tracing is breaking down. So a normal result, they should be able to keep their eyes on that dot while the chair is in motion. And what the actual eye tracing will look like in the software is almost like a pursuit eye movement. It's a sinusoidal, sinusoidal, I can't even say that word tonight, <laughs> uh, waveform that you should see because the eye is keeping focus on that stationary target. An abnormal result would be if the eyes look really psychotic, so there's a lot of psychotic intrusions, or they have the inability to keep their eyes on the dot. And what you actually, what's actually happening, it's a breakdown of the cerebellum, is their eyes can't, they literally have to do mini saccades to try to keep up with keep their eyes on the dot while the chair is moving. So that's why you see those psychotic intrusions. Um, this is most characteristic of a very unique disorder that you've probably heard of but may not have seen. It's called canvas cerebellar ataxia with neuropathy and bilateral vestibular areflexia syndrome. Whoa. And I know, it's a mouthful. A I've, I've seen, I think, two or three patients, and they're so unique because, first of all, they have bilateral vestibular loss. So you're already wanting to do rotary chair on them. They fall on the foam. They've got no calorics, like no vamps. It's super interesting. And then the hallmark symptom is they have this psychotic intrusion on VVOR. And it's really important, you know, in these patients, this test is the difference between just being like, why is this bilateral hypofunction happening? And hey, they're ha they probably have canvas. I need to send them to a neurologist. So this test alone is the distinguishing factor for that. And that's why it's super important that you know about this, even if you don't do it with every patient. That is so interesting to have uh, an actual test that can really, truly pinpoint a specific disorder. I feel like... I feel like oftentimes we're in, in vestibular science, we're trying to find that test, that test. Yep. It's always a race for that test mm -hmm. to, you know, to really pinpoint things and to have one, you know, here in, in the rotational chair, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Now, in your experience, Liz, do you feel like the smooth or this uh, visual enhancement um, examination correlates well with, I mean, I don't know if this is a dumb question or not, but I feel like it would correlate well with just regular smooth pursuit testing or are they... Um, can you have well a normal smooth pursuit and an abnormal and, and an abnormal visual enhancement? You can have a nor normal smooth pursuit and then an abnormal VVOR, and that's actually like part of the diagnostic criteria, I believe. Uh, it's interesting because it's when the visual and vestibular um, systems are interacting that it breaks down, and so we're giving that vestibular input by the chair moving back and forth, and also expecting something of their eyes, and that's where you see the breakdown happen. When they're sitting stationary and following a pursuit stimulus, most of the time the patients do just fine. So that was a wonderful discussion on VVUR. Thank you, Liz. Um, I'm going to take us into uh, a test that 
probably you all are, are will definitely see more of out there in the Dizzy Clinics. And um, I would say is most often built into um, the, the standard rotational chairs and is used in conjunction to um, shot testing. And that is VOR suppression, or sometimes you'll see it as VOR cancellation. And it's a very simple test. Um, you're sort of going through the same frequencies or you have the ability to go through the same um, sinusoidal movements um, you know from 0.01 to 0.64 you can sort of choose and we'll talk about you know some of the reliability um, across uh, between frequencies uh, when performing this test but it's basically performing a Shaw test except again no tasking like Liz gloriously mentioned and to um, the initiation or sort of the presentation of a, of a, of a dot or some type of fixation point uh, for inside uh, the goggles uh, for the patient. So the patient is essentially instructed to stare at the dot while they are oscillating um, back and forth. And so what does this all assess? This is essentially the uh, ability of the cerebellum or the central vestibular system to visually suppress vestibular input coming into it from the left and right uh, peripheral uh, vestibular sides. And so it's actually going to reflect the, um, the Purkinje cells within the vestibular cerebellum and their inhibition um, from the midline cerebellum down to the vestibular nuclei. And normally, in a normal working system, we want the central system to suppress the um, peripheral system or any vestibular input that is coming coming into the uh, the brainstem, and so if not, that could be an indication of a central vestibular system impairment. That's one of the few, I would say, if not the only central vestibular test that we can actually pinpoint where that lesion is. Um, so. Very few compared to how many peripheral exams we have. But essentially what it's doing, it's really simple. It's going to, um, in our rotational chair uh, episode, we mentioned that one of the measurement parameters for Shaw testing is VOR gain. And so for VOR suppression, it's going to take, or it's, it's going to take VOR gain um, when a fixation light is present and compare that to the VOR gain when there is no fixation light present. And the percent in reduction is going to be the amount that person was able to centrally suppress. And so um, I know typically, I know in our clinic that we want to see at least a 50% uh, reduction in uh, the VOR. Uh, when a fixation light is present, I'm not really too familiar with any other norms out there other than that. Yeah, I, I was trying to think about that as you were talking too, yeah. because I think the main thing when doing this test is that you have to have normal VOR gain and Shaw testing before you do it. So that's, that's super very, important. <laughs> very, very, very good point. Because that's going to mess up like how much it reduces if you don't have a normal gain to begin with. So you have to have normal gain with the eyes open with good tasking before you can do this. And you can do it at the exact same frequencies in which you do Shaw. Um, but yeah, it, I haven't heard of any other norms with that. I'm yeah, I, I have not either. And so I'm not even 
too familiar, it honestly. <laughs> it should reduce. I am not even even too familiar where. I'm sure it's one of the early uh, Balo papers in in yeah. the 80s that probably came up with that value. But um, so anyway, there's norms in the system, though. I mean, based on age, right? At least I know of of the um, interacoustics micromedical system. There's norms that'll yeah. tell you the gray area that they should. So be this in. was this is what I have found interesting. So I've looked yeah. at those some of those norms that are in some of the systems, and I think like anything, you know at least 20 or if they're able to i want to say it doesn't line up with that 50 percent yeah it's a more stringent criteria it is it is and i'm not i'd be curious to to see where those those norms came from yeah because if i had to guesstimate just based on my like visual memory i feel like if they had a hundred percent gain in CHA testing, it's like they can't be below eighty or yeah, something like that. Like right. that's what the norms almost look like. And there's no norms in the system for the lowest two frequencies, 0.01 and 0.02. So typically, I would perform this in like a couple higher frequencies. Yeah, but it needs to be a consistent result. Like that's why I like, unlike you know, caloric testing, which we also do a VOR suppression task. It's nice to be able to do this at multiple frequencies and you can make sure your data lines up yeah, before you make a referral. Absolutely. And the the nice thing about this is that you know what stimulus you're presenting. Like yep. you it's very it's much more objective physiologically, I think. Um so I mean I love I love using that. I I know it's built into our protocol and a lot of protocols yep. out there. Um and so normally of course we want to see that at least 50% in that reduction. VOR gain reduction. Um, and so, yeah, you had just mentioned um, that VOR cancellation does decrease, or at least the reliability or effectiveness does decrease with increasing frequency. Um, now, you have also mentioned, I know, things about infants. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So one thing to know, and if you're in pediatrics, you probably already know this, but I think it's up into six months of age, infants lack not only high gain smooth pursuit, but also the ability to suppress their VOR. So if you've seen a pediatric vestibular talk and they, you know, spin the kid around, they see this big like um, post rotary nystagmus that cannot fixate. It can't stop. It just (laughs) keeps going. So uh, that's not your target audience for this (laughs) test. (laughs) But um, yeah, that's something to keep in mind. Most other people should be able to uh, complete this task without much issue. The only other caveat I will say is I've noticed in patients post-concussion who have convergence eye issues because the stimulus is presented within the goggles. If they can't converge their eyes on a close target, that can also be difficult. Yeah. I mean, those are like the clinical considerations that you really don't learn in textbooks either. You know, it's like that is just comes with straight experience. Um, And uh, there is some some evidence to suggest that, you know, VOR suppression reduces performance or the performance reduces with increasing age. But I still feel like I've also seen Um, at least if there's not any obvious central, uh, thing going on, um, at least that 50%. Do you know if there's any, I actually don't know the answer to this, but do you know if there's anything where if somebody has the failure to suppress VOR post calorics, would you see it across all these frequencies? Like if you were to test in rotary chair or would there ever be a frequency dependent failure to fixate? I don't know. That's that's a very good research question. Potentially if anyone knows, a capstone out. <laughs> out there if anybody wants to bring one up to their supervisor. <laughs> but uh, yes. I I don't. I okay. um I am not sure. 
to be honest. I'm not either. So if anybody knows, contact us and yeah. maybe we should look into this. But I do think it's interesting because we always learn in caloric testing, like failure to suppress is a huge central sign, like refer immediately. And it's cool that like, even if you're, you have a patient that you can't do calorics in, you can still get that really valuable information and it doesn't take very long at all. No takes a few seconds or not okay that may be exaggerating <laughs> but it does take a few don't tell your patients <laughs> like, that, like a few like seconds a, later yeah it's not but it's very short relative yes, to everything else is. we do okay next we're gonna touch on a test which i feel like if i can motivate you to do one test one additional test to your rotational <laughs> chair battery i feel like this would be it am yeah, i right it's a great it's a great test it's step testing. Some people call impulse or step velocity testing, but it's actually one of the oldest of all of our clinical vestibular tests. Um, it was introduced by Robert Barony. If you've heard about the Barony chair in 1907, where literally they just like spun a patient in a chair and then they'd stop the chair and be like, whoa, look at their eyes. Um, and I think some people when the rotational chair code came out were doing that in just a normal office chair, which now they've maybe cracked down a little bit on yeah. for the good. Um, <laughs> But step testing is a really neat test in evaluation of the velocity storage system. And essentially what, what happens is you rotate the patient in one direction. So let's say we start with clockwise direction. And that acceleration, so the beginning of the movement causes a burst of eye movement, burst of nystagmus, which once you get going at a constant velocity, diminishes. So the nystagmus eventually slows or almost stops. And then when you stop the chair and that constant velocity is interrupted, you will get another burst of nystagmus. And we know that, you know, the measurement of how big the gain should be, so how much the eyes should move and how quickly the eyes should diminish in their movement, that's all very well documented. Um, this test, I generally explain to patients, like when you take off on an airplane, so you notice the big velocity movement when you get started and then once you're in the air for a constant speed most of the time people adapt pretty well and you kind of forget that you're moving at 500 miles an hour <laughs> um, the people that don't forget are the motion sensitive ones who maybe have some central vestibular issues going on um, but it's the same type of idea we're evaluating how well the central adaptation to a change in movement is um, this step testing like i said is you're either rotating clockwise or counterclockwise one at a time, and it's performed in the dark. There's no stimulus that they have to stare at. We're just measuring their eye movement in the dark, similar to Shaw testing, and it can be performed at two different speeds. This is interesting because I feel like I didn't remember, and I'm saying I, I, I didn't remember learning it in school because I'm sure I learned it and just forgot it and never used it. But the low velocity versus high velocity step testing. Do you remember learning about these differences? No. no. And we, when we were preparing for this episode, I was like super intrigued and I couldn't wait to talk about this um, because, yeah, I feel like I we randomly just, you know, chose maybe 100 degrees per second at some point, you know, just yeah. like maybe a rant. I, I never really it was always fuzzy to me, like why, yeah. you know, why we would why choose a certain. Yeah. Why we would choose a certain velocity over another. But now it seems that. There could be a reason. Yeah. And I know Chris Lisky has done a ton of work in this. Like I just recently went to one of his online lectures and he was talking about this velocity difference. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I miss out on this? So there's two velocities in general that people will perform this test at. The first one is a low velocity, which you said you do at like 100 degrees per second. I know I've done that in the past. Yeah. yeah. 
So anywhere from like 60 to 100 degrees per second is considered a low velocity movement. It's pretty slow and tolerable. And then there's a high velocity, which is 240 to 300 degrees per second. Pretty quick. And so depending on the velocity that you're spinning the patient in, it can give insight to different parts of the system. And I... The low velocity gives better insights to the central functioning. So kind of what I was talking about, that central adaptation, the velocity storage system. And then the high velocity, there's been a lot of data to support that it's valuable in lateralizing the peripheral vestibular lesion side. So most of the time we always say rotary chair, you can't tell which side is lesioned, like bottom line. But Mm -hmm. this is the one test, a high velocity step test that you can actually say a side you know, as a result of the test. What's What's interesting is that I look at these, um, you know, peak velocities. Like if we look at a high velocity, 240 to 300 degrees per second, that's not too far off uh, some of the other um, peak velocities we hit during vestibular testing. So like V-hit, when we're doing head impulses, I mean, we're anywhere from 150 to 300 degrees per second. And... What can we do with that test? We can lateralize a side. And exactly. so it makes sense that if we, um, for, you know, stimulate, um, the, you know, if we have a high enough velocity, we could be able to do that in rotational charge. So I just found that that was an yeah. interesting uh, uh, way to kind of connect those two measurements. It really is. So yeah, the goal, you know, whether you, I think most most of the time clinically, I, I haven't done the high velocity with patients because again, I didn't know the difference till very recently. This is why I like doing this podcast, but um, I generally do a low velocity to give me better indication about central system. And you'll do like clockwise to begin with, give a two to three minute break and then do counterclockwise. You have to do both sides. That's important. But generally what we're measuring, we measure gain, of course, um, which is the amount of eye movement with each of those chair acceleration and deceleration. And then a lot of times people care most about something called the time constant. And so the time constant is the time in seconds that it takes for the nystagmus to decline to 37% of its peak gain value. So when you start the chair right away, the eyes are moving like crazy, just like you would see in Shaw testing. And as you're moving at that velocity, they start to settle down. And for some patients, they stop completely. And so you're waiting for how long does it take for that response to decline to 37%. Most of the time that should happen within about six to eight seconds for most patients. Uh, But research has shown that anywhere between like 10 and 30 seconds is probably the most well accepted. Um, The main thing is if it's shorter than five seconds, it can indicate a peripheral pathology. And if it's greater than 30 seconds, it can be something central. So there's kind of the sweet spot for how long it should take your system to adapt to the change. If it's shorter, it's uh, peripheral. If it's longer, it's central. Has that's super interesting. Ha, ha, I has there been any research, you know, or uh, do you know anything about the effects um, or how that may look differently in someone with a unilateral or bilateral peripheral impairment? So my understanding of this, which again, anyone is welcome to correct us always and forever um, because we are just like you and we are learning. But um, my understanding is that step testing is, so the gain value can obviously change just like Shaw value. So if you have a bilateral impairment, you're gonna see low gain across the board in Shaw. You will also see low gain in step testing. And you'll probably also see those shortened time constants. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but in a peripheral, unilateral peripheral, it will compensate just like you see in Shaw. Right. So okay. you may see reduced gain and reduced time constants. Both reduced gain and time constants are an indication of a peripheral lesion that's uncompensated. Gotcha. So it's a nice cross check for Shaw testing just to make sure you got legit results. If you also get the same gain and time constant issues in step, then yeah, you've got something okay. going on. Great. So yeah, assuming the, the patient is compensated, we should really not expect huge issues with with those gain values and someone with a unilateral impairment right right yeah, okay. exactly and then in the central cases like we've talked about if you have a greater than um, 30 second time constant adjustment i think that is like one of the best descriptions of people who are motion sensitive because their system never adapts to the change or if they do adapt it's a really long adaptation period so like when someone gets in the car and they get like, well, there's a lot of reasons people can get car sick, but let's say an airplane where you don't have maybe as much visual stimuli affecting you, just that constant movement speed, their system never adapts to it. And that's probably where they're getting like some mismatch of information. It makes them sick. Um, you may see that those patients have a greater than 30 seconds uh, decay time. All right. So the tests that uh, Liz and I just talked about are going to more likely be in incorporated into the standard rotational chair um, along with along with shot testing. Now, these next two might uh, are a little bit more special, a little bit more unique and are uh, more likely not going to be into in the in the rotational chair that you may buy for your you know standard uh, dizzy clinic they may be you know you might have to specially order uh these tests but um they are the off vertical axis rotational test and the unilateral centrifugation test it took me a while yeah, I'm to, impressed. to figure that out but uh, how to say that but um one i'm going to refer to the unilateral centrifugation as the uc um, which is essentially an extension of the off vertical axis rotational test or OV, uh, OVAR, OVAR. Do people say that? I don't, know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I know I've seen it in multiple studies referred to it that way, but essentially these two tests combined were sort of the early ways to measure otolith function. So when we talk about um, how do we measure otolith function today? Well, we do it with VEMPs all the time, uh, and it's so um, easy and so nice. But, but um, prior to, what, 1994, um, they didn't necessarily have VEMPs yet. And so, you know, these special specialized um, and expensive methods of measuring otolith, uh, it was an expensive way of measuring otolith function, but um, it's it's quite quite interesting. And so... We're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about about how it's pretty much set up or what what's gonna be happening during this. Yeah. So I did we did do a survey on Instagram of like which test were people least familiar with, and it was these last two. And I also voted for that because I'm like I do not know any like I've I've seen these terms, but I literally know nothing about them. So they still seem a little foreign to me. But in general, the test setup for both of these evaluations. The idea that instead of the patient sitting straight up and down in the rotary chair, they're in some ways manipulated to be slightly tilted or reclined so that you can position the body, aka the otoliths, in a certain way in respect to gravity so that you can really like, I don't know, figure out exactly what's going on with one side or the other. Is yeah. that a good way to describe it? Yeah, I feel like that is the best way to describe it. Um, there, So this, you know, Essentially, we're going to be rotating at a constant velocity, and 
the there's trust us there is math behind this as to why <laughs> as to how this actually um results in linear acceleration or some type of gravitational uh stimulation of those otolith organs and it's done in different positions and so this first um uh o ovar test is um primarily going to tilt that chair um within the yaw rotation so it, it's not going to be um you know pitcher roll the patient's not going to be completely sideways it's going to start um in that side to side swivel that um that Shaw testing does, except at a much higher uh, peak velocity. And during that movement, it, the chair is going to be tilted uh, very ever so slightly, but enough to create this linear acceleration on the otoliths. Um, so from my understanding, you know, you're measuring, you know, nystagmus during this. And it, this protocol essentially stayed more or less in the research realm for a while. Um, until the extension of this, which kind of leads us into unilateral centrifugation, which um, we mentioned earlier, or UC. And instead of tilting backward, UC actually tilts laterally, either to the right or to the left, while the patient is rotating at this um, high high velocity. Now, I know what you're thinking. It is probably not the most pleasant experience, um, especially if you have an older patient coming in. So um, you can see how, how these these tests have primarily remained uh, more in a more in a research realm. But uh, it essentially the the UC this uh, this tilt lateral to the right or to the left um, gives the examiner the ability to measure um, the response of the utricle separate from the other side. So there's, it, it allows you to unilaterally measure a nodolith organ as opposed to the total response. That was a yeah, lot. That was. And it's <laughs> so like, you may not have heard of it because it didn't gain a lot of clinical momentum. It's expensive and unique equipment because you have to have that off accessibility. So that may be why you haven't heard of it, but that OVAR, as we'll call it, it, the goal is to look at eye movements, and for the UC test, actually the patient was doing an, a subjective visual vertical task at the same time. Right. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. So while the patient is tilted, and off axis, <laughs> spinning from anywhere from 240 to 300 degrees per second, so that's two, and three, they are then asked to perform um, a, a subjective perceptual task targeted at the otolith organ. So that would be subjective visual vertical. And they're going to be using, um, you know, dials on the, on the handles of the chair to move that vertical line to earth vertical. And it is um, essentially going to give you some type of objective measurement of the objective measurement of the utricle of the right and left utricle separately. Yeah. And so um, it's really cool. I mean, I feel like it's a it's a really cool uh, a test. I know I've done it before. I <laughs> personally, <laughs> personally have done it. And it is a ride, I'm telling you. Yeah. yeah. I was reading in, in that big balance book, um, I was reading about um, Janky and Shepard, Kristen Janky and Neil Shepard had done um, some tests about nausea 
and Naja and UC and OCVR, OCVR, is that right? OVAR? OVAR. OVAR There's yeah. no C in there. Um, but it seems to be a highly nauseous test. So I guess we can be very thankful that um, we have VEMPs, which yep. are also a very <laughs> effective way to look at these organs. But it's good to know about these because you never know what job you'll end up in, what abilities you'll have through equipment, or where research will go. I think it's really good for us to know our past because that helps direct where we'll go in the future. Yeah, I feel like that, especially that last point, I feel like it was very, um, a a very great point because there's a lot of... um, ideas that are not only outstanding, but there are a lot of research questions that may have already been answered or may have at least looked, um, you know, that have at least been investigated at some point. And so to know where we have been, um, absolutely, like you said, couldn't have said it better, Liz. Well, and there may be, you know, in the future, I feel like, especially I just got back from a PT conference, which was amazing to go to, but, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, potentially in the future, there may be an option for PTs to help with like player enhancement. So like being able to train the vestibular system and some, some PTs are already doing this to, so that an athlete can perform at higher levels. And you never know when like this type of test might be helpful for a gymnast or like, I don't know, it's, I don't know where the future will go, but I could see it being useful for specific clinical populations to give us better idea of what's going on because our typical rotary chair just moves in that horizontal canal, um, you know, plane. And so we are getting good information from there, but it's not the extent of what our system can do. Absolutely. And look what, look what, um, what like visual enhancement we talked about VVOR and look at how well it performs or how well it's used in those special populations like canvas. So, um, yeah, that's a great point. So hopefully you've gotten a little bit of um, overview of maybe some tests you've heard about but haven't done in the clinic or maybe some tests like me that you haven't really heard about nor have you used. And maybe this can give you something to take into the clinic tomorrow or the next day to try with your patient because I guarantee you that VR suppression and STEP and VVR are all available, you know, in your rotational chair systems. Yeah. So I think with that, I mean, that was a short and sweet episode. Actually, I think, I'm not sure. We I'm say sure short it's, and it's, it's never exactly short. what the time is, but um, <laughs> yeah, that was informative. I know I've learned um, quite a bit just doing, yeah. researching some of this stuff. Agree. And we'll be posting. So there were two main, besides the big balance book, which I feel like I always refer to, there were two other articles that I will post on if you want a more in-depth review. And I also will try to post some pictures on our Instagram and Twitter about um, what some of these tests look like, because I think the setup alone can better describe a lot of these things that make more sense once you see a a picture of them. So we'll be sharing information on our Instagram and Twitter. So make sure you follow us. And talking about where we have been, it would be, we will also share a picture of what the rotational chair looked like back in 1907 and 1910. Um, Super cool, super fascinating. And one one other kind of historical bit that I want to bring up, it's, um, you know, we talk about rotational chair, especially step testing being introduced in the 19, in 1907, early 1900s. But one of the interesting or one of the um, interesting things that I that I that happened was it showed a lot of promise. People started using it, but it never really gained traction because 
there was something else that was overshadowing it at the time, and that was the good old caloric test. And so people can just kind of dropped um, using rotational chair because caloric test came, was was so valuable. So uh, and look what's was, overshadowing I, now. No, I'm just I know. Imagine <laughs> going back; it's coming for its revenge. Well, but. and that's why I think it's it's just so it's so important, especially as we move forward, that we understand the history of some of these tests because I think they could come up in some creative way in the future. And like, I think it's cool that we have this community going because it's possible one of you is seeing something really neat in the clinic uh, with one of these tests and starts to look into it or gives us the idea to look into it. And you never know where that will end up. Absolutely. So join us. We're, we've got two more episodes this year in 2022. Um, we've got some exciting things planned for our last two episodes. So make sure to join us. And then we'll start our season three. Season three. And thank you all for sticking, yeah, sticking, sticking with us for sure. It's been a journey and we're excited to continue. So good luck with the rest of your month. And we will see you next month here. Take care.